0: Board Gaming with Education, a podcast for anyone curious about how games and education mix. We explore various topics like game-based learning, gamification, and board games, and the impacts they have on learning. Here's your host, Dustin Stats.
1: Coming up, we have another episode of Board Gaming with Education. We interview Nick Metzler of Spin Master Games. In the episode, we talk about his design journey and how he started as a just a really young kid And first entered into the Chicago Toy and Game Week's Young Inventors Challenge and how he ended up winning that the first year and the second year. So be sure to listen in. He has a lot of experience in the design realm and he even gives you some tips as an educator on how you might integrate some design practices or game-based strategies in your teaching practice. As always, we have a quick update from Board Game with Education. We just released our game-based learning course where you transform one of your previous lessons or a new lesson into a game-based learning lesson. I walk you through that process through video content, step-by-step guide, and individual support and feedback. So be sure to check out that course. You can find it at our website, boardgamewitheducation.com. Be one of the first things you'll see up there under the menu item for courses. You can also sign up for our newsletter, BoardGamethEducation.com, or you can just send me an email, podcast at BoardGamethEducation.com. I'll be happy to reply. And if you have any questions about the course, be sure to reach out there as well. All right, let's get into the episode. All right, welcome to another episode of Board Game with Education. I am excited to be joined by Nick Metzler. He is a game designer at Spin Master Games, and I'm excited to have him on the show because we're going to talk about a topic that we talked about previously, but I'm excited because we get to hear a different perspective about Chicago Toy and Game Week and the Young Inventors Challenge and learn a little bit about Nick's design journey. So, Nick, before I hopped on the call, I did... A little research, and I found out that you had tracked every 15 minutes of your life in the year of 2018.
0: <laughs> I'm surprised you found that. Uh, that was that was hidden pretty deep, but yeah, it's it was quite a year. My my buddy made me a, a bet that, and you know, I didn't have enough time to start a business. Or actually, he said that I did have enough time to start a business in my spare time, and I said that's absolutely ridiculous. I don't have enough time because I'm doing like all of these other things. And he said, prove it. And so I said, okay. And I started tracking my time and it was only meant to go for like two months, but then I got totally addicted to it. I loved seeing the data visualization and I did every 15 minutes for an entire year, tracked all my time and I got some really cool data from it. I got some pretty good insights.
1: That's, I mean, that's just crazy. I guess if you told me you did that and I had to give you a job title, I might... I might put you as a designer or entrepreneur.
0: <laughs> or maniac. <laughs>
1: <laughs> awesome. So would you mind just sharing a little bit about yourself and your background?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, hey, everybody. My name is Nick Metzler. I'm 26 years old, and I'm a board game designer for Spin Master. I started making games when I was four years old, and I made. I started out with puppet video games. I absolutely loved Mario and 8-Bit Mario. But I had ideas on how to make the levels better. And better in that time was more of what I wanted. And so I drew up massive levels and I put a little puppet Mario on my finger and moved it across a paper while my parents played with the cardboard controller shouting out A and B as this thing jumped. (laughs) After a couple of years of that, I, uh, I realized that that was really boring for everybody else. So I started moving into board games and card games and I made a trading card series that had 450 of my own trading cards. And I developed 30 board games before I was in high
1: school. That's super awesome. So you're 26 now and you started at four. So that would make it 22 years. Am I doing my math, correct?
0: Yeah, something like that.
1: So I'm excited to have you on the show because I want to talk about how you got into game design as a younger kid and how that how we might as educators encourage our students to do that or as parents encourage our kids to do that. I guess I'm not a parent, but so I don't know it as us parents, but as an educator, for sure. Before we get there, can you tell us about a time that you were on the receiving end of learning something through a game?
0: Yeah, sure. So one kind of sticks out in my mind. I was super addicted to Pokemon, like a whole nother level of addiction. I would be staying up till 3 a.m. playing my Game Boy in my bed, and then I'd be waking up at 5 a.m. so that I could play before my parents woke me up for school. And I I did this workaround because they only allowed me to play 30 minutes a day. So I had to get the hours in somehow, right? (laughs) So, like, I was super addicted. And not only did I have every Pokemon discovered, I had all of them in my PC at any given time. And if you've ever played Pokemon, you know that's, like, absurd. I go back to the manic part, right? So, But I I loved Pokemon. And the the reason that I give this as a good example of learning something through a game is because if you asked me to name all the features of say like the periodic table where there's a hundred something elements, I wouldn't be able to name most of them because when I was taught it in school, it didn't have any like lattice method of understanding. Like there was no context into anything. There was no reason I needed to understand that this one was number, this thing, or it had these properties, but you contrast that with Pokemon. And if I played a Pokemon game for say 30 hours, I would have had, all of those Pokemon memorized, all their skill sets memorized, what they did, where they evolved, all their types, what they were up against, what they were good at, bad at against. And I would have had all of that stuff memorized and at the tip of my tongue to use. And I think that goes to show, you know, what contextualized learning can do, especially in a game. And so I think learning is a really, I want to say understudied medium, because there's so much that can be improved in it. if you understand the the psychology behind learning and i think pokemon specifically is a pretty good program for you know conveying and learning information
1: right i love that i love that analogy and i really admire some of the designers and game companies who are trying to or maybe are are doing that and they're gamifying the periodic table and they're showing students and players of the game how these elements do have a context and how they relate to what we interact with in our lives.
0: Yeah, I think it would really help because I think if you give people a base understanding of something and you show how these different principles interact with each other, you you give that lattice method for learning. You give things that you know you can hook new concepts onto. But if you just throw knowledge at people, it never sticks. It doesn't relate to them in any way in their life. They don't know how to use it. And I think games present an important medium because it gives you contextualized learning. You're making decisions within an environment with the information that you have. And if you can use that information effectively, then you'll win the game. Whereas you don't necessarily have that in traditional knowledge
1: intake. Right, right. I mean, that's, that's spot on. And when you were designing games as a kid around four years old, and then later on, how did you jump into just doing it as a hobby of something fun than making it a career?
0: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I got a really lucky hand of cards basically is the the best way that I can put it. I was born in Chicago and my mom was incredibly creative. And so she always pushed me to, to be more creative. And uh, as I was designing games, my, my mom found an article in the newspaper talking about a young inventors challenge. It's kind of like a science fair for toys and games in Chicago and she was like, Hey Nick, you should enter this. And I was like, man, eh, I don't really want to, I don't know. She was like, come on, we're going to go, we're going to go check it out. You're going to see what's, what's going on there. And so I looked around and there was probably about 20 kids there and they all had their games and they all looked kind of like Monopoly square boards, flat, nothing really super exciting about this. And then I saw the prize package. The prize package was an all expense paid trip to New York. And I said, Oh, I'm entering this and I'm going to win it. <laughs> yeah, I, I entered in the next year. There was about 50 kids the next year and I ended up winning it. And the next year I entered it again. I grew the, I grew the competition from 50 kids to 250 kids in one year. And I ended up getting a back-to-back win uh, that second year. And with that second year, I, I got a game published when I was 17, which put me into the professional sphere and totally changed my life forever and put me on the career path for game design.
1: That's awesome. So I kind of want to look at if you can remember what inspired you to continue to do it. Because you said that the the prize was kind of the thing that said, oh, yeah, definitely. I'm going to do that. What were there any other motivating factors to keep you going as you designed uh, to keep me
0: going as I designed? I'd say it was very much internal. Uh, it was an internal hobby. And I liked it because it was repetitive. I really enjoyed repetitive learning, and that spoke to me. But I also liked twisting the the same things over and over again. So I would often take a game that I enjoyed, but maybe other people didn't enjoy, and I would take the pieces that everybody enjoyed, and then I would tweak the the parts that people didn't enjoy to try and see if I could make it so that everybody would enjoy it. And I did that over and over and over again. And with every game that I developed, I tried to change one thing and, and Put in one thing that I had never seen before, and just to see if it would work and for me, that was exciting because it was completely within my control. I could do it you know at my house. I was doing with these things with markers or with recycled materials and stuff like that, so all the materials were readily available to me, and because it was all readily available to me, it was very independent and as a kid, you know independence is very important, you know proving that you can do things by yourself, and so that really just you know, kept going for me. I felt like I had complete control over it. And as I grew up, the more I designed games, the more I realized I loved seeing how people behaved within these games. You know, if you play tag with somebody, for example, people behave differently than they would in a typical atmosphere setting. So you can get adults to run around. And I think the best example of this is uh, my mom, she used to host Amazing Race birthday parties for us when we were kids. And it was just, I told you, my mom was incredible, uh, super creative. But she, when I was 10, she held an amazing race party. And one of the challenges, I'll I'll get to it. But uh, (laughs) when the party was over, parents walked in and they walked by a a line of perfectly planted flowers and they walked up to my mom. They were like, that wasn't there before. And my mom said, yep. And they asked, (laughs) well, who, who did that? And my mom was like, Your kids. And they were just stunned. They were absolutely yes. stunned because that was one of the challenges. And it was like a mini-game in this race. And the rules were that you needed to plant a flower perfectly to the judge's likeness, right? To the to to you know, until they like it, basically. And that that is a, a perfect example of why games are so powerful. Because it gets you to do things that you wouldn't typically do. Like who would have thought 10-year-old boys would have liked planting flowers? We had a blast doing it. And that that was a big shift in my mindset for me, going from, you know, this is just a fun thing that I'm doing, into, holy crap, people behave differently when they're playing games. I wonder if I can start tweaking rules to make people behave in certain ways. And if I can do that at scale, I wonder what would happen you know, if we can start doing this to help change behavior, help change people's value systems, or help people learn in a new way. And so I guess that's kind of my direction of where I'm going. And so I did a minor in psychology and a major in entrepreneurship college.
1: That's super awesome. I'm I'm curious, I have a follow up question as far as maybe any advice you might give to either a teacher or someone that's Responsible for their learning environment, whatever that may be. What advice might you give them to set up a game to encourage positive behaviors in their class or positive learning experiences?
0: Yeah, I get asked a a lot about gamification, and there's a lot of misinformation about gamification out there. A lot of people think that, oh, it had its heyday and it doesn't really work because, you know, for whatever reason, it was just badly implemented back then. And the, the real way to implement gamification, and for the, the layperson here, gamification just means that you are designing a game to try and elicit a specific actionable goal for whatever organization that you have. A lot of people think that just means throwing on badges and points, but that's not it at all. Gamification is about motivation. And it's about making sure that the motivations of both the, the business and the consumer are completely aligned. So, in a classroom standpoint, this means you need to understand the true internal motivations of the kids and you need to tie it to your own classroom goals. And where those two intersect, that's where the gamification really rests. And I'd say there's a couple big factors here. Kids love to talk, they love to share their ideas, they love to be creative, they love to run around and yell, they love to learn. They really do. They're naturally inquisitive, they're curious. If you can take those natural states and you can tie it to whatever you're trying to do, your classroom goals find where the centerpiece in that venn diagram is that's where gamification rests
1: i love that i I think one thing I love to look at as far as gamification and you're you're right there's a huge misconception, especially in education recently, is that gamification has became this negative thing, and we're moving toward towards game-based learning. But I think a lot of us aren't realizing that we're implementing gamification all the time and not realizing it. Yu Kai uses the definition human-focused design. And I love to look at gamification in my classroom as student-focused design. I'm designing a learning environment that makes my students the center of my environment, the center of the experience, because that's Ultimately, what who we're trying to reach, who we're trying to teach.
0: Yeah, and I think it comes across as like a, well, yeah, no duh, but like how do you actually execute it, right? So I think the the big piece here with actually executing this is do something different. Like do something completely different. Don't worry about points and badges. That part doesn't matter. What really matters is being in a different Uh, quote unquote environment if the kids are naturally sitting all day every day stand up do the opposite of what they're expecting if they're inside go outside if they're on zoom that's going to be a little bit trickier because you can't go into into person but what you can do is you can go into breakouts where people talk to each other and come up with natural solutions to whatever problems there are and it doesn't have to be just about the specific lesson plan. You got to relate it in some way to real life, relate it to why this lesson plan matters for you know their future life. Like, why is it important for them to understand this? And I, I would say, even before the lesson plan begins, have some questions, some probing questions that get them thinking about the topics of, you know, like why does this thing matter? And then hit them with the lesson plan. Be like, all right, this is what we're gonna be learning about XXX. And so you'll notice I haven't talked at all about badges or points or anything like that. I've talked mostly about the motivation. You know, are people excited about doing the thing? And I think it came to this realization when I was trying to design, quote, the perfect game. And the more I studied it, the more I realized this doesn't exist. Because the the nature of fun is subjective. It's entirely subjective. It's entirely up to the person. And one of the core principles of games and gamification is that volu- like participation in a game has to be voluntary. When you're playing a game, you're making up rules and you're all agreeing to abide by those rules. If you're not agreeing to abide the, by those rules, then you're not all playing the game. And so inherently there has to be a voluntary action here. And people need to internally decide that they want to play the game before they're going to have fun playing the game. And so I'd say that that's the most important piece when you're trying to gamify something is make sure that you get buy-in from every single person, make sure they're excited about it or else don't do it.
1: Right. I think that's one of the trickier things in, I mean, in education we have to think about differentiation and making sure we're creating instruction for all of our students and not just particular ones. And I think games can be tough because we do have some students who are not excited for some games so it's 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 tough to think about like well how can we get buy-in from our whole class
0: here's here's a bit of an answer you take the most excited kids and you pair them with the least excited kids and you give the excited kids an incentive to want to help the least excited kids become more excited
1: that's nice yeah
0: right i mean i know i put the framework very easily like that but you guys are the experts here. Like you guys are the experts of your classroom. You know, the, the consistencies within your classroom and you're going to have to decode that. But that's the framework is make sure people's incentives are aligned. Make sure people's motivations are aligned. And the more cooperation, the more social interaction, the better.
1: Right. And I think that's a very popular strategy in instruction is pairing up high performing students with lower performing students to help them encourage each other or encourage the lower performing student to kind of bridge that learning gap, I suppose.
0: Sure. But then I I go back to the question of like, okay, why? You know, but why from the student's perspective? Why does the student want to do that? You need to answer that question for them before they even ask it. And I think once you answer those questions, you can get buy in from the students as long as there is a incentive to want to do it.
1: Right. Yeah. That's I mean, that's a perfect example. I think I think you're right. I think that's a good way that teachers can keep in mind for when we're gamifying classes or bringing games into our classrooms. I kind of I want to go back. I think this is a really good topic because I, I I. know I'm learning a lot from behavior and psychology, maybe in my classroom or how to implement games for my classroom. Let's go back to the young inventor challenge and how you uh, maybe some challenges that came along your way. And also, I'm super curious because I know the game that you invented that you ended up bringing to market, but uh, our listeners don't. So could you share a little bit about what the game was?
0: Sure, yeah. So the the first game that I won the the Young Inventors Challenge with was a game called That's Cheating. And I developed this game because, uh, like I said, when I, the, when I first walked around, every game kind of looked like Monopoly, right? It was all square and it was all flat. And so I said, okay, I want to be completely different than all of these other games because this is a this it was a publicly decided vote on who was going to win. And of course I wanted to win, so I needed attention. And so I wanted to be different from everybody else. And so the first thing that I did was I made my board game a circle. And there were five concentric rings that spun around each other. And I knew I needed a really strong name, a name that really, you know, took your eyes away from everything else and put them onto my game and the biggest thing about games was there's a one rule that spans every single game and that's don't cheat and so I decided to make my entire game about cheating (laughs) and uh, the best cheater wins right so the game ended up not being super good but I got the required attention so I ended up winning but I set out the next year to try and really make a good game and uh I, I took that same kind of mindset, that same principle of trying to be different in every way possible. And I looked to other games that did something that I hadn't seen very often. That was a physical feature. There was like, you ever played
1: Trouble? Trouble. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, how there's that button thing in the center. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. It's the best part of the game. You have no idea how to play the game, but you hit the thing in the center. It pops the die and it's a lot of fun. Now, why aren't there more, why isn't there more physicality in games? That was my mindset going into it, right? And I was like, all right, and every board game is flat. I'm going to make mine 3D and I'm going to make it physical. And so I made a board board game called Squashed. That was a three-dimensional cube. And if you made it to the top of the cube, you got to flip the cube any way you wanted and squash any pawns caught underneath. And so it ended up being a really cool three-dimensional board game and it got picked up by a company called Playsmart and sold for seven years
1: that's awesome that's really awesome and now you are doing design board game design full-time so what does that look like for you day to day
0: so it's it's one of the greatest jobs in the world i'm not gonna lie (laughs) it's uh i i go to work and i play and i have fun and it's an absolute blast but it's not all dandelions and roses and everything like you know Half the games that I come up with get killed, especially after I've worked on them for months. And that's always a little bit, you know, but it's okay because it requires you to have a lot of ideas. And so I'm constantly churning out ideas pretty much every week of new games. And I think my favorite example of of this is we're we're making a game and they asked Uh, our our leadership said, Hey, we want to make like an Alexa enabled game. Can you do it? And I was like, you know what? I think I can. So I did a one hour brainstorm. I came up with a game. I, I pitched it to them. They liked it. And I then worked on all of the content that weekend brought the game back. We ended up getting this game to market in 11 weeks from conception to on shelf in 11 weeks. And that was a new record for us, but it, it was just an absurd sprint, but it shows that, I don't know, an idea can make it to market really, really quickly and you can never lose hope. You just got to keep going and keep designing because one of them eventually is going to be really lucky and that's the one that makes it all the way through really, really fast. Whereas another one that I was working on for two years that ends up getting killed. It's like, it's kind of funny.
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, it it hurts right you're you have a passion project you've been kind of designing for a couple years and it's now in the garbage can
0: (laughs) look you gotta you gotta be passionate about the job not the projects. that's the goal right right i just i just assume they're all gonna die and when one makes it through i'm like oh cool look at that
1: (laughs) (laughs) a nice surprise what are what are some examples of other games you've designed
0: um, my most popular game that I've designed is actually a Marvel Link. It's called Hail Hydra. And the idea behind it is uh you're on two separate teams. One team is Shield, one team is Hydra, but everybody outwardly says that they're Shield. So some people on Hydra are lying to you. And you need to figure out through the course of the game who's lying to you, and you need to kick them out of the missions before they help the villains destroy New York City. And so that one got me a lot of buzz. And it's been great working with licenses and that's one of the benefits of working for a major company like Spinmasters. We have access to these licenses. So that's been a, an incredible blessing.
1: So do you have any tips or words of advice before we go into the last segment for either a young designer that wants to either go into design for the long term as a career or as a hobby, or for teachers and educators and parents who are helping encourage young designers whether they're running a club after school for board game design or they have a student in one of their normal classes that are into board game design?
0: Yeah, sure. I'll uh, I'll do one for each. So to the, the people that want to become board game designers, it's, I gotta be honest, it's a really tough industry. There's a lot of, there's a lot of competition and the The easiest path to entry is through Kickstarter right now. And thank God for Kickstarter because that revolutionized the entire board game industry. It it gave so much power to individual creators. But on the flip side now, because there's so many competitors, in order to stand out on Kickstarter, you need a really strong marketing strategy. It's about 50% marketing right now on Kickstarter. So as much as you can have a great game, it's you know it's a lot of marketing. So from a business standpoint, if you're trying to get into board gaming as a career, as a way of making money, you really need to make sure that you have that marketing angle. The other thing that big companies and smaller companies look for is trend games. So games that are on trend. So if you see a viral video that's going around, make a game for it. Make a concept really fast. Make it within 2 days and keep doing that. So whenever you see a trend, make a game for it. And Eventually, if you're in these circles long enough, you'll start to meet the people that you need to pitch these games to. And if you're trend driven, if you have lots and lots of ideas based on trends, you might get a hit. And I'd say that that's probably the best way to load your dice to get the best odds of getting a hit. Because you just need you need a lot of shots on net like. I I'm in a really enviable position because I'm in a company. I know the corporate strategy that we're after and I get like directives on what games would go into market, right? And so I design games specifically to that directive and still 50 to 60% of my games don't make it. And so coming from the outside, you really need to just be hitting every trend possible. Either that or you need to have a very very clean game that can be explained in Thirty seconds to a minute, and if you can't do that, it becomes really tough. So, from a, a career standpoint, I'd say that those are the the biggest pieces of advice. I didn't want to sugarcoat it because it's it's tough. A lot of people lose money when they're trying to make games, but that's the best way to to load your dice. From a teacher standpoint, encouraging kids, I think this is a really cool opportunity, especially since the Young Inventors Challenge just went digital, because all professional inventors are submitting their ideas right now via video. And the people watching these videos are the people say in, in spin master or in Hasbro or in Mattel or in other companies like that. They're all watching these videos. Now these same people that are watching these videos are going to be some of the judges for the young inventors challenge. And these young inventors are going to be submitting videos of their inventions to the people that are watching these professional inventors. So I don't necessarily see that there's a difference between the professional inventors and the kids, especially in this scenario. So this is really a, a golden opportunity for kids to have the opportunity of a lifetime to actually have a shot to get their game into market. And I'd say that's a really cool thing to say It's like, Hey, you are a professional inventor because you have this opportunity. Like if you are pitching to these people, you're a professional. And that's pretty cool. And that, that's just something inspirational that I've been saying to kids and gets them all excited about it. But if the kids aren't super excited about making a game or something like that, ask them about their favorite games and think about what they do for fun. Ask them what they do for fun and then ask them, okay, why is that fun? Ask them those why questions, those probing questions and really let them break it down Break down exactly why they like those things. And then hit them again with another game. Say, okay, come up with another game that you like. Ask them why they like that one. Break that down. Distill it. And once you've done that three or four times, combine all the things that they like. Tell them to combine those things that they like. Tell them to find a way to put all of those things into one idea. And you'll find that the kids are really excited about working on that thing because it's all the things that they find fun right? And you can do that in projects and things like that. And so I've been working with a couple of classrooms to do that. And the, the kids absolutely love it. They have a great time. And none of it comes from me. It's all them. And that's the point. It's, it aligns their motivations and their incentives with what our goals are in the classroom, right? Which is to, you know, create a game, get them involved, get them involved in the learning process. And at the same time, then they're actually getting real-world experience. They're pitching to people. They're talking to people. They're sharing their idea. They're getting feedback. They're getting playtesting feedback. They're getting all this experience. And they might get negative criticism. And that's okay. That makes them stronger. That makes them better. And yeah, so that's why I'd say from advice to teachers about giving advice to kids on game design, tell them to distill the things that they already like down to why they like
1: those things that's that's fantastic advice i really like that so we're gonna move into our final segment round and that is a thumbs up thumbs down quick lightning round i give you a statement and you give me a thumbs up and a reason why or a thumbs down and a reason why
0: love it Let's make it happen.
1: All right. So the first one, I might know the answer, but we'll see Uh, Dexterity Games. Love it.
0: It's one of my favorites. I'm completely obsessed with Survivor and Minute to Win It and game shows kind of like that that have challenges on the show. It's just stuff that you wouldn't typically do and makes you move your body in new and interesting ways. And I just I love that experience of running around and trying to balance on a balance beam while you're uh holding pots in two hands and making sure the water doesn't spill out because you need as much water as possible to pour into the bucket like that's just so much fun like i love that type of stuff
1: and that's awesome and the next one so i don't know if you're you're contracted not to answer this one but dc comics
0: DC comics I, to be honest, I was never big into comics when I was growing up. It wasn't uh, it wasn't big so I'm gonna have to give it one a thumbs down I've never read a DC comic in my life. I have also never read a Marvel comic in my life. The funny part is I've designed games for both of them <laughs> okay <laughs> I've got a I've got a joker game coming out in August.
1: Oh awesome really cool. And the last one zombie themed games
0: zombie themed games. That's tricky. (laughs) Uh, I've played Plants vs. Zombies, and I haven't played any other zombie games. I've never played Zombicide. I know it's fantastic. Uh, I like the zombie genre. I think it's pretty cool. I think you can do a lot of interesting stuff mechanically with it. Am I partial to it? Eh, I'm kind of middle of the road. Do I love Zombieland and Zombieland Double Tap? (laughs) Absolutely, they're freaking hilarious. Um, so I'm going to give you a neutral on that one. A neutral. All right. So thumb sideways.
1: Awesome. Nick, thank you so much for sharing some of your insights. I learned a bunch from this show and I'm sure our, our listeners did as well. If someone wanted to reach out to you or find out what other games you're working on, how might they do that?
0: Yeah, unfortunately, I'm not huge on social media. And the reason is I just don't like updating it. I've tried it in the past and it just requires way too much time. You can check out what I've done on Instagram on nick.metzler.games. I'm not active on it, though. I It's been a year since I've logged on, so that might be tough to reach me. You can search me on Facebook under Nick Metzler. If you reach out and reference this podcast, I'll answer you. You can also find me on LinkedIn. That's actually the site I'm most active on, ironically. So if you reach out to me there, just shoot me a personal note in your invite or something uh, talking about this podcast, and I'm happy to, to get in touch with you.
1: Awesome. And do you have any projects you can share or anything that people can look forward to and find some information about upcoming projects?
0: Yeah. So it's tough to talk about the upcoming projects, uh, especially since, you know, a lot of them aren't announced yet. But my my most recent game that will be coming out is uh, Joker, and that comes out in August of 2020. But I also just helped produce a new type of game show uh, that was filmed entirely over Zoom. And I worked with a bunch of guys that uh, were crew on Survivor for it. And we, uh, the guy that ran it decided to call it Quarantine. And the idea behind it is we got 16 strangers from around the U.S. and we put them all in Zoom together. And every round, a subset of them were randomly selected by a wheel to be put into a quarantine. And then one of those people needed to be voted out. And so it ran over 15, uh, 21 days or something like that. And I developed all the challenges for it with another guy. And so we're going to be editing that and putting it out shortly. It'll probably be on YouTube. But if you see quarantine game, um, (laughs) that'll be it. That's awesome.
1: (laughs) Awesome. So again, thank you so much for coming on the show, Nick. And hope to talk to you again soon. You too, Dustin. Thanks. As always, thank you for listening. If this was the first time listening, or if you've listened to a couple episodes, be sure you're subscribed. That helps others find the podcast or leave us a review. Again, these things really help others discover our podcasts on different podcasting platforms. And remember, teach better, learn more, play some more games. One game I've been playing recently, The Search for Planet X. What about you? Let me know what you have been playing recently.